Welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. It's your very copacetic host, Sophia, and I have been looking forward to announcing this episode for a while because today we're talking about witchcraft. And no, that's not the Wicked Witch of the West or Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter. There will be no Wingardium Leviosa, if I'm saying that correctly. Nor will we be telling you how to brew potions or cast a spell on your crush. Sorry. Instead, we are going to dive deep into the intersection of gender studies and paganism with esteemed guest, Dr. Sabina Magliocco. Dr. Magliocco, a professor of anthropology and folklore, is renowned for her extensive research in modern paganism and witchcraft, and her insights have illuminated the ways in which these spiritual pathways embrace and celebrate diverse gender identities. She grew up in Italy in the United States, receiving an AB from Brown and a PhD from Indiana University, and she has taught at California State University where she served two terms as a department chair, as well as the University of California, Berkeley, the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCLA, and the University of Wisconsin, Madison. A recipient of the Guggenheim National Endowment for the Humanities, Fulbright and Hewlett Fellowships, and an honorary fellow of the American Folklore Society, she has published on religion, folklore, foodways, festival, and witchcraft in Europe and the United States, and is a leading authority on the modern pagan movement. Her current research is on nature and animals in the spiritual imagination, and she has even appeared as an occasional guest on a number of popular television series about modern legends and beliefs. Which means, yes, you heard that right, I am talking to a celebrity. Anyway, without any further delay, I invite you to sit back and relax under a warm blanket, turn up the volume in your car, or get started on that long walk. Let's dive in. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is the Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. A lot of people have an idea from pop culture about what witchcraft is, what magic is. A lot of people have heard the story of Hansel and Gretel or watched Snow White. How much of this is accurate and how much of it strays from what paganism actually is? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast and thank you for your interest in my research. Um, Let me start answering your question by saying that witchcraft and paganism are different. There is a modern pagan witchcraft, which is a religion which developed in the middle of the 20th century. It's a new religious movement, which is part of a larger movement called neo-paganism. But that new religious movement is very different and has very little to do with the kind of witches that we think about in folk and fairy tales, uh, the ones that you mentioned in Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and and so on and so forth. Um, Witches in history and in anthropology are uh, persons in the community upon whom the community projects many of its fears and anxieties, and whom the community likes to blame for basically the presence of evil. So many cultures have a belief in witchcraft, a belief that certain individuals have the power to harm others through supernatural means. And in English, we call those people witches. 
this is in Western cultures largely a historical construct, although there are still pockets in which there is a belief that people can harm others supernaturally. In many cultures of the world, it is an actually held belief system. And even in Western cultures, we find, for example, um, groups of people who believe in conspiracy theories, uh, groups of people uh, who who have unusual beliefs and who still uh, believe, for example, that there are people in their communities who do unspeakable things and who harm people supernaturally, who worship the devil. This is a, a Christian conspiracy theory which arose uh, beginning in the 12th century and which attributed to witches, along with many other horrible things, devil worship, because witches in any society in which they appear as these figures of projection are always the opposite of right society. They are always figures upon whom we project everything that we fear the most. So if you think about the witch in Hansel and Gretel, she does something unspeakable. She traps and eats children. You know, she lures them to her house and then traps them so that she can fatten them up and eat them. That's unspeakable. There is no culture on earth in which that is good, right? But it is something that people fear. People fear that their children might be hurt in some way, trapped, eaten, even figuratively. So, for example, today, among some conspiracy theorists, you find the belief that there are groups of people in society who are luring children into, um, for example, uh, uh, some sort of sexual slavery, uh, who are, um, you know, predators who are, uh, what is the word I want? Grooming children. This is really big in the United States right now, where the entire LGBT community in some areas of the country is being blamed for, uh, for grooming children, uh, and luring them into this horrible quote unquote lifestyle. I, I use that word as an emic word. You know, that's how they talk about it, even though it's not a lifestyle. It is something that you're born with that you can't change. Right. But anyway, this idea that there are people out there predating on our children still exists. It exists even in Western culture. And historically, it was attributed, projected onto this category of people like witches. Modern pagan witches have nothing to do with those witches of folktale, or rather, they take that idea of the witch as the opposite of right society, and they sort of flip it on their head to turn it into something empowering. Because in the West, particularly, witchcraft was long associated with women, even before the emergence of the diabolical witchcraft conspiracy theory in Christian Europe in the 12th century, even before that, you go back to classical times, which is in classical literature were always women. If you think of Circe, who turned, threatened to turn Odysseus and his men into pigs. If you think of Medea, right, who helped Jason, but also, uh, but also committed crimes, right? Uh, these were witches and they were women. So this idea linking witchcraft to women has very, very deep roots in Western culture and literature. What happened is that with the 
emergence of new ways of thinking, ways of thinking that empowered women, that sought to give women equal rights, that sought to give women a voice in society. Uh, women who were nonconformist, women who had their own voice, women who were powerful, women who were not afraid of men, uh, women who knew things, because witches knew things. They knew how to use herbs to make different kinds of potions, how to use magic, right? Became a, a sort of figure of admiration instead of a figure of fear. And witches are not alone in this. There are a number of supernatural figures from Western folklore who have also undergone a very similar transformation. If you think, for example, of vampires. Now, when you think about vampires, a lot of people think about the sparkly vampires in Twilight, right? Or they think about the sexy vampires in um, uh, Anne Rice's novels or in the novels of Deborah Harkness. Well, vampires were nothing sexy. They were nothing to admire and to want to be for hundreds and hundreds of years. They were figures to be feared, very much like witches. They were figures uh, blamed for things like wasting illnesses and sudden death among people. They were associated with plagues and epidemics at a time when people didn't really understand the scientific concept of contagion or didn't understand the scientific reasons for contagion. They understood contagion, all right, but they attributed it to vampiric figures as opposed to the spread of germs. So many supernatural figures like vampires and witches have gone from being figures of fear to figures of admiration in literature, in film, in contemporary culture, right? And witches are simply part of that movement because witches in Western culture are overwhelmingly women. They also take on this cast of being figures that empower women to take control of their own lives, to, to be powerful, to be in charge, to, to be magical. And so what modern pagan witchcraft has done, especially feminist witchcraft, is to flip that figure on its head and see it as a positive. And what drew you to studying it? Good question. So my initial work was with uh, traditional uh, Catholic festivals in the Mediterranean. But what I looked at was the role of women, particularly women who got involved in in uh, the organization of festivals uh, in the political sphere in their towns. Because these festivals are organized by committees, and these committees often function as a way to give people experience with administration and to help them form strong networks of people who will help them and support them across a variety of activities. Uh, so I was interested in women, ritual, and power. When I uh, when I left the field in um, 1989, 1990, following that, there were a number of changes in the political situation in the area where I worked. And also, I didn't have opportunities and the finances to go back and continue studying that issue. So I was looking for ways of studying the relationship between women, ritual, and power in the contemporary United States, where I was based at the time. And I was at the University of Wisconsin. I had a position there. I 
came to know about a local woman named Selena Fox, who called herself a witch and who organized a lot of political rallies and things like that for feminism, for women's rights, for the environment. And I got interested because I thought, well, here's a woman who uses these rituals as kind of political protests, as kind of a a way to express political opinions, as a way to gain political support. Here's another way that I can look at some of these issues, but in a very different context. So I attended my first ritual uh, at Selena Fox's sanctuary outside of Madison, Wisconsin. I believe it was in the spring of... 1990 or 1991, I went with a a class full of students, number of students from my class on the supernatural, a class I still teach, by the way. And um, it was an Earth Day ritual, uh, you know, raising energy to heal the environment, because there was already in 1990, a great deal of awareness of what we were doing to the environment, of how we were harming the planet, and of the dire consequences, if we didn't stop doing that. Uh, so I attended that ritual, and and I really got hooked, because I, I could see many connections with what I had studied before, but I could also see many new directions that my research could go as a result of that. So that launched my interest in modern pagan witchcraft. Moving, moving on, I want to talk more about um, your book, Witching Cultures, Folklore, Neopaganism in America. And I have a few quotes here that um, I was really drawn to and that I want to kind of ask you more about. Um, The first one is um, that witchcraft provides a way for people to engage with the numinous and the extraordinary in their daily life, in their everyday life. Um, So first, I want you to explain a little bit more about what this looks like um, and use historical anecdotes or um, personal experiences maybe to kind of expand on that and particularly how can this apply to people who've maybe never come across witchcraft before? Okay, let's begin by defining numinous. Numinous is a word that comes from the Latin word numen, which means something that is awe-inspiring, something that is um, that 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 just uh, leaves us speechless, something that is in some ways inexplainable and that touches the sacred. So all religions seek some kind of contact with the numinous. I think it's a basic human need. We find it in all religions, cross-culturally, and also across all times. So humans have a need to touch the sacred. They have a need and sometimes a response of being awe-stricken in front of things that we find awesome. Right now, awesome just means cool, right? But at one time, awesome really meant something that struck us speechless with awe because it was so majestic, incredible, awe-inspiring, sacred, right? So that's the numinous. It is something that is awe-inspiring, that is sacred. And all religions have a way for humans to touch the numinous. And I think that people who are not religious, who are purely secular, also have this impulse to seek the numinous. Perhaps they seek it in other ways. So for example, many people who are not religious might find the numinous in contact with nature. 
They might love to hike out to a place that is particularly majestic or awe-inspiring, a stunning waterfall or um, an incredible sunset, and they might find that that inspires awe in them, that that inspires a sense of sacredness. If people are religious, they might find that sense in a religious service, in a ritual, right? But we all have the capacity to experience that. Now, I, in modern pagan religions, they're no different from other religions in that rituals are set up to give people that experience of the numinous. How? Through a variety of different experiences. First of all, many of the rituals are held outdoors in nature. And if you're in a beautiful natural place, I think that it makes it a little bit easier especially for some of us who weren't raised with a particular religion, who don't have a particularly uh, pious or religious orientation, to feel that sense of connection, to feel that sense of awe, of, um, of contact with something bigger than ourselves. But rituals are also structured in a way to favor that experience through the use of music, through the use of poetry, through the use of participatory activities like chanting, dancing, movement, um, through the use of things like costumes and masks, they transport people into a different kind of reality. They take us out of that rational mode of thought, which all human beings have, all human beings in all cultures, in all historical times, have the capacity to think rationally and make rational decisions and deliberations about the world around them. But also, all human beings in all cultures in all historical times have the capacity to think in a participatory fashion. In other words, in a fashion that um, in, in which they are not disconnected from the world around them. They are part of the world around them. And these tools, like music, chanting, dancing, the wearing of costumes and masks, contact with nature, all of these things help break down that division that we often feel between ourselves and something greater than ourselves. You can call it nature, you can call it the sacred, you can call it the numinous. And they put us back in that participatory space in which everything is connected to everything else. We are a part of that and in which everything has a meaning. That's what happens in good modern pagan rituals. Mm -hmm. How does that compare with other faiths? Good question. I would say that all faiths have, in theory, the capacity to move people into that space using various tools. For example, this summer, I took a group of students on a field school to Sardinia. And one of the things that we experienced is one of these traditional festivals, the Feast of St. John the Baptist on the 23rd and 24th of June in a very small community in Sardinia, a very small mountain community, where um, the mass was sung by a choir. So things rather than being spoken were sung in this beautiful harmony in a very old chapel going back to the 12th century. And the obrieri, the committee that organized the festival, marched into the church carrying the banner of the saint. And, you know, these, these things, even if you are not 
um, you know, only one of my students was Catholic, grew up Catholic, and understood maybe the the more religious meanings of this. But every single one of us felt a sense of awe at that moment. You know, it's the kind of stuff that makes the hair on your arms stand up on end because it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And in addition, if you understand the symbolism, you understand. You know, there's a vase of sunflowers there on the altar. The statue is brought out. Uh, there's light that shines on it. it. It's it's you you understand layers upon layers of meaning, and that transports you to a different place. There's a sacred fountain outside of the chapel with water that becomes magical on that day, and you see people touching the water, bathing their face, their hands in the water, putting it on places that are painful, you know, like their knees or something like that. It's it's all it's all good, right? So all religions have ways of moving people into this space. But I think what happened with Protestantism and especially with uh the Enlightenment in the West is that many mainstream Protestant faiths grew further and further away from this idea of ecstasy, religious ecstasy of touching the numinous on an everyday basis. First of all, the Protestant religions were very text-based. The idea was that the faithful could touch the numinous by reading the Bible in the Vulgate language. In other words, not in Latin, because by then people didn't understand Latin anymore unless they were very learned and had studied it at university. That was a very small number of people. But the Bible was translated into everyday language, you know, into English, into German, into French in the Protestant areas of France. Kelly, would you not snudge the monitor, please? Thank you. My cat is snudging the monitor and it's just shaking like that. Very cute. Anyway, um, so the, the, the contact with the numinous, with God, was through reading the Bible in your language. And so that's very textual. It's very verbal. And all of those other manifestations, like the music, the dance, the folk, you know, the vernacular parts of religion, like the the festivals, the feasting, the dancing, all of these were labeled as pagan and as things that would actually take you away from the sacred. I think the result was that... Um, the numinous was removed from everyday religion, especially from Protestant religions, but also from some versions of Catholicism. And you get these rituals that perhaps work for people for whom the word, the text, is a connection to the numinous. But again, that's a very, very small number of people. Most people really need those other things, the whiz-bang, that's what moves us, right? When you go to a rock concert, why do you have people who love rock stars? Because that is a secular experience of the numinous. The music, you know, being in the mosh pit, pressed from all sides by other sweaty human beings who are all screaming because they love that band, right? That's that is an experience that takes us outside of ourselves and puts us into contact with something bigger, right? But it's not a sacred experience. It's a secular experience. So that division of sacred and secular really happened through the Protestant Reformation and then the Enlightenment. 
And these experiences became relegated either to, to the secular, right? Or they became branded by some uh, versions of Christianity as evil, as devilish. There are many uh, fundamentalist versions of Christianity which see song, dance, uh you know, um, celebration as things that are devilish. This started with the Puritans, right? They wanted to purify uh, Christianity, to go back to an earlier form of Christianity. Well, they, I, I don't know if they successfully went back to an earlier form of Christianity. My guess is that from what we know in the New Testament, early Christianity was also very charismatic, but uh, but yeah, they they got they they got a different form of Christianity in which all of these things were devilish, in which the only way to connect with the sacred was through faith and through the text. Mm. That's really interesting. I I want to bring that into the next quote that I want to ask you about, which is about folklore, um, particularly in the context that there is more. There's the religious, spiritual folklore, and then there's folklore that's more attributed with um, fairy tales or pop culture. So I I wanted to hear more about what you feel the distinction is, if there is one, and how folklore might um, interact with how we experience numinous things in our everyday life. Um, but the, the quote that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, folklore is both an active and is both an archive and an active process, a way of looking at the world and a way of being in the world. So could you just expand on what this means um, while just clarifying what folklore even is? Yeah. Yeah. OK, so let's talk. Let's define folklore, because the way that I understand folklore as a folklore scholar is different from the way that we use this word casually in everyday language. So for a folklore scholar, folklore is traditional expressive culture. And again, it's something that is found in every culture in every historical period. And it is a living thing. Folklore is traditional in that it has roots in the past, but it is constantly being reinvented, reimagined, re-understood with new eyes by each person who performs it or repeats it or does it. It's really part of the way that we live our everyday lives, because everything that we do is steeped in these traditional and expressive understandings. Um, folklore is expressive culture in that it is part of the ways that we express ourselves. So, yes, fairy tales and folk tales are folklore, uh, but so are memes. Memes are traditional expressive culture. Now, you might say, well, traditional, wait a minute, you know, there were no memes before the Internet, but there were things a lot like memes. People printed them on paper. It was called Xerox lore, photocopy lore. Before that, uh, there were other ways that people um, expressed themselves in that way, graphically, such as marginalia. You go back to medieval manuscripts, you find marginalia in medieval manuscripts where people have, have made funny little drawings and then put a text with it, right? Early photographs. We have early photographs, for example, of cats that have text printed on them that are very like the cat memes 
that you could find on, you know, I can has cheeseburger and other funny pet and animal uh, generating sites. So that's the tradition of it. These things have a long tradition in time going back to the, you know, to, to when people were first writing and creating images with writing near them or next to them. Um, memes, that's part of what makes memes traditional. And we know that they're expressive and they're part of culture. So that's why they're folklore. So folklore is both an archive in that every meme contains the history of this human activity going back to, let's just say, people who wrote in the margins of medieval manuscripts. But it's also an active process in that, you know, I can find a picture of my cat on my phone, right? And, uh, you know, alter it with text and with special effects and throw it on the internet. And if I'm lucky, you know, I'll put it on my Instagram and it'll go viral. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it is that um, quality of being shared, right, that also makes something folklore. So if I just keep it on my phone, it's not folklore. But once I've shared it and other people are sharing it and maybe altering the meme, you've, you see these memes where somebody has taken out a word and they've put in another word and you can kind of tell because the font is different, but it's still funny to that particular subgroup of people. Well, there you go. Uh, someone has taken it and changed it and and changed that tradition to express something that they feel. So this is why folklore, this is how folklore works. This is why folklore is both an archive and uh, what was what is the other thing that I wrote? An action? Active process. Active process. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and this is why even things like folktales uh, never stand still. Folktales, as we know them, have been written down. They were collected by many collectors starting in the uh, 17th century. We're most familiar with the folktales collected by Wilhelm and Jakob Grimm in mm -hmm. 1812. Yeah. But, uh, but these stories existed in oral tradition long before they were written down. And they continue to exist in multiple variant forms today, both as literary tales and as videos and uh, films, you know, the Disney films, uh, and as tropes, right? Uh, political cartoons that use the folktale trope or, or rituals, for example, that are based on characters in a folktale, processes in a folktale. Folklore mm -hmm. is alive. Once it's dead, it's not folklore anymore. Once it's dead, it's not changing. People aren't using it. They're not passing it down, or they have this idea that it cannot be changed. And at that point, it dies. How does, um, one thing you mentioned earlier was um, the idea that throughout history, there was a point when, in, during the enlightenment before, um, and even now to an extent, Pag being a pagan uh, in some circles is, is considered an insult and, and that it's kind of just been constantly attacked as something very fringe and extreme. How, how has uh, folklore and storytelling contributed to that and also to kind of the resilience of paganism as 
Uh, wow, uh, that's a really good question. So, so the word pagan really didn't exist with its meaning of non-Christian until Christianity emerged as a religion, until Christianity emerged as a, a, a big religion, an important new religious movement. So I'm not talking about the years immediately after Christ's death. I'm talking about the years around 200, 300, 400 AD as Christianity is becoming one of the larger and more forceful new religious movements in the late Roman Empire, in late antiquity. Now, Christianity spread first through the cities. It was in the cities that Christians found one another and uh, and worshipped in each other's homes. And so the, uh, the, the people who lived in the countryside weren't being exposed to this new religious movement. And the the countryside in Latin is the Pagus, and the people who lived in the Pagus were Pagani, people of the Pagus. So the Pagani, the pagans, were people who lived in the countryside. They were maybe a little bit um, not as stylish, not as up-to-date as people who lived in the urban areas. They had not heard about Christianity yet, and they were not part of this new religious movement. So from the beginning, pagan had kind of a stigmatizing quality to it in that it meant somebody who was backwards you know who wasn't stylish who wasn't part of the in crowd who wasn't part of this new religious movement now in late antiquity at, at a certain point people who were not christian did begin to talk about themselves as the pagans but certainly in early christianity you know in the very first years of the movement this word didn't have that connotation and nobody sat around in ancient Greece or Rome and said, oh yeah, we're pagans, right? Mm -hmm. But in Christianity, uh, in, in the vernacular religion of Christianity, as well as in official Christianity, this word continued to gain negative connotations because at first it was just the people who had not converted yet because they were not cool enough. They lived, you know, they were backwards. They lived in the countryside. But uh, over time, it became associated with practices that Christians found uh, evil, not just backwards and, you know, old fashioned, but downright evil, downright devilish. And so when you find, for example, Puritans in the 17th century using this word, they're not talking about people living in the countryside anymore. They're talking about people who don't worship as the Puritans do. And actually, many times when Puritans are using this word in the 17th century, they're talking about Catholics. They're not talking about... Using. Yeah, they're, they're talking about Catholics because they viewed the festivals, the saints' days, these kinds of um, uh, secular activities, vernacular religious activities that occurred around religion, they viewed those as illegitimate. And so they used the word pagan to delegitimize those. They viewed these things as pagan survivals, as uh, leftovers from pre-Christian times, because the Catholic Church did indeed absorb many pre-Christian practices in, in, its, in everything, everything from its organization to the ways that, to the whole idea of saints, who are nothing other than very powerful dead people in the tradition. Uh, 
right? To uh, the cel- to seasonal celebrations. I mean, all of these things were absorbed and changed, radically changed by the new religious movement as it became a dominant religious movement mm-hmm. in late antiquity. Uh, so the Puritans weren't completely wrong, but they certainly were wrong in that Catholics absolutely did not see any of these things as relating to pre-Christian religions in the least, and would be very offended to have, for example, their solemn and pious celebration of the Nativity of the Virgin Mary be seen as something that was idolatrous and pagan. But with Romanticism, with the emergence of the Romantic movement in the late 1800s and I'm sorry, in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century, so the late 1700s and the early 1800s, the Romantic movement pushed back not only against the Enlightenment, but, but against all of these earlier conceptualizations of the world. And in an attempt to re-enchant the world, uh, a world that was rapidly industrializing, that was rapidly urbanizing. They idealized these ideas. Again, they reclaimed this idea of paganism, turning it into a romantic idea of the countryside as a place of authenticity, as a place of wonder, a place of the numinous, a place of magic, a place where we encounter the sacred, a place where people had more uh, genuine relationships with each other, with community, and with the sacred. And so you begin to find in the writings of people in the early 1800s, in the writings of poets like Lord Byron, uh, this word pagan being used in a positive sense. And that's really the the beginning of the modern pagan movement. Mm. Did... Um... The, the folklore and storytelling within paganism, did that help to preserve it, do you think, or, or was it something else? Because obviously, if it's been subjugated for so many years, it's kind of impressive that it's survived to the modern day. So throughout Christian Europe, many traditions continued to be practiced, which probably had roots in pre-Christian practices. So it wasn't the storytelling that preserved them, it was the doing them that preserved them, Mm -hmm. right? Because this is just what we do. So for example, right now, it is the end of August, and throughout Europe at one time, uh, the wheat and other grain crops would be harvested any time from really the end of July to the end of August. This was the, the grain harvest. And people had been growing grain in Europe since the Neolithic. So there were many customs and traditions that might be very, very old that continued to be practiced, such as the um, the celebration of the cutting of the last sheave, the last sheaf of wheat cut from a field in English folklore is called the neck. And the neck was braided together, it was celebrated, it was decorated with ribbons. Um, Often a young man or a young woman went running through the fields, calling the neck, the neck, and waving the neck, and everybody would try to chase that person down and grab the neck. The neck was kept in the household, decorated with ribbons like that, for good luck until the following harvest. In some parts of England, the neck would then be fed to horses. You just feed the old neck 
to horses or give it to the animals or compost it or something because you now had a new neck that would bring good luck to you and your farm for the coming year. Now, is this a Christian custom? No, absolutely not. It has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity in in any way. Are there stories associated with it? No, not really. We don't even really know why it's called the neck. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But it's something that people did. Why? Because it's traditional and it's fun and it's good luck. And so you don't want to stop doing it because, you know, you might not actually believe it. It's not true, really, but you don't want to not do it because it's not true, but I believe it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so these traditions were preserved for hundreds of years. Now, I'm not going to say that they were preserved unchanged, because again, we know that folklore is living, is active. So, you know, each generation might have made some changes in the tradition. Each generation might have braided it differently, decorated it differently, put different ribbons, different colors on it. Um, You know, all, all of this is constantly in flux. It's constantly changing. But the thing that the last sheaf of wheat is somehow special, that idea persisted. Now, why is that important to modern paganisms? As paganisms begin, as, as paganism as a concept begins to be reclaimed with the romantic movement and, and people begin to look back at the past and think, oh man, those customs and traditions, they were really special. Well, maybe they were pagan. Well, maybe they connect us to our ancestors before Christianity, at a time when we venerated nature, when everything was filled with magic and was special, then these traditions become emblematic of that ancient period. And modern pagans love to revive them because they see that connection between these practices and the practices that people in a very, very distant past were also doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would like to get on to talking a bit more about ritual, uh, but also uh, about the role of gender in paganism, because to me, it's notably different from um, Abrahamic religions, where there's an idea of God as male, there's an idea of men and women having separate roles, and there indeed being only two genders. so I wanted, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about how gendered language influences the way uh, practitioners of neo-paganism connect with the divine and express their spirituality. And I think actually after talking about folklore a little bit, it would, it would be interesting to hear how, whether there are any examples of that in folklore. Okay, so... Um... Let's begin by talking about the fact that the majority of modern pagans are polytheistic. So unlike the monotheistic Abrahamic religions where there is only one God, for modern pagans, there are many, many, many deities. And those deities fall all over the gendered spectrum. Now, for the earliest neo-pagans, the people starting the movement, the the romantics, for example, I don't think that the romantics, I don't think that Lord Byron was thinking about the gender spectrum. I don't think that that was part of his way of thinking about things. 
But um, as we move into the 20, uh, first, let me talk about the duality of gender. So for the earliest pagans, they they took inspiration from the religions of pre-Christian European and Near Eastern peoples. And those religions had gods and goddesses. And because they weren't thinking about gender on a spectrum, they really were thinking about male and female deities, many deities that incorporated many different aspects of human existence. So right away, that's a different gendered language from Abrahamic religions, where you have only one God, and generally it is the masculine form that is used, the masculine form of the language used to refer to him. So in in paganism, you can't talk about one God, and you can't talk about just male gods. You, You have to include goddesses. Now, this idea of goddesses was very powerful to women in the 19th and 20th centuries who were part of a movement to gain human rights and voting rights and full civil rights for women. And so some of the early... um, some of the early suffragists, some of the early uh, writers, uh, I'm thinking about, um, and now I'm I'm bad at names, so I'm blanking on this. I'll come back to it. Uh, some of the early late 19th century and early 20th century writers uh, were already interested in the idea of a time when people had worshipped goddesses as well as gods. And some of these feminist writers took it further, or rather built on ideas of male writers such as uh, J.J. Bachhofen, the German uh, author, uh, the German historian slash sociologist, who hypothesized a time when uh, all human beings had worshipped a mother goddess and hypothesized that these societies were weak and only with the incursion of people who worshipped a male god did society move forward. Now, let me just say that there's absolutely no archaeological or scientific proof supporting this idea, right? That uh, there were matriarchal peoples who were overthrown by superior patriarchal peoples and therefore civilization moved forward. This is Uh, a 19th century construction. But for early feminists, again, they took this construct and reclaimed it. And and they they became, um, they were enamored of the idea, of course, that there was a time when people worshipped a mother goddess. Uh, And they began to imagine this time as a time of very different values. If early peoples worshipped a mother goddess, they argued, Uh, then the earth itself was seen as the mother, and the earth itself was sacred. Now, there's actually some evidence to suggest that this was the case for some prehistoric peoples. We have, for example, uh, evidence of burials, people buried in the earth in what looked like womb-like structures, buried facing the east, the direction of the rising sun. We have many figurines uh, that have survived from that early time that represent women. Uh, sometimes they represent women uh, who look pregnant or who look what we would call uh, unhealthily obese, but perhaps they were thought of as having that capacity to give birth, right? Having that 
form that suggests that they had enough to eat, more than enough to eat. And so for our ancestors, this would have been a very important concept since most people were hungry a lot of the time. So there's some evidence that goddesses were part of the pantheon of our very earliest ancestors. The idea, though, that this was a peaceful golden age in which there was no warfare and women and men had equal rights, we can't reconstruct this from archaeology. So this is part of that narrative that then develops with early feminists and that gets picked up for example, with second wave feminism in the 1960s, as women are looking for alternatives to patriarchal Abrahamic religions with just one male god. So this is where you have in the 1960s, along with second wave feminism, the the birth of the goddess movement, a feminist movement in which it is goddesses or a goddess, one goddess that is venerated supremely above to the exclusion of male gods. But goddess spirituality is only one very small part of the modern pagan movement. And the majority of pagan religions, while they recognize goddesses, are not focused only on one goddess. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how how does this goddess spirituality um, apply to modern day fights for gender equality? And also, I'm just curious, how how do men play a role in this? Because, of course, there's, uh, in a polytheistic religion, there being gods of multiple genders. How do, how do men um, play a role in that kind of worship? Right. So there are some feminist goddess spirituality traditions that are for women only. And men do not play any part in those religions at all. And in fact, those forms of goddess spirituality have recently come under a great deal of fire because there are conflicts in the ways that uh, that they are perceived and that people within them perceive gender. So the most, I would say, radical uh leaders in the goddess spirituality movement, women like Z. Budapest, one of the early founders in the 1960s of Dianic Wicca, a kind of witchcraft only for women. Um, Budapest and women like her are um, trans-exclusive. In other words, they see gender as rooted only in biology in the biology that people are in the the sex that people are assigned at birth uh, they tend to be gender essentialists and think of gender as something that is tied to biology biological sex and an essential part of who you are as a being and so clearly in these circles um, transgender women non-binary women women who don't identify or persons who don't identify with a label woman or man because they are agender, these people are generally not welcome in those circles at all. And in fact, sometimes you will see and hear outside of one of these rituals, signs, or you know, people telling you women born women only. What does that mean? It means that you have to be assigned female at birth to participate in those rights. And some of their rights, not all, some of them, 
really tend to center around biological processes, processes such as menstruating, such as giving birth, which are pretty much exclusive to people who have been assigned female at birth. Of course, this creates a great deal of um, unhappiness in transgender women who are women who would like to participate in these rights, but who are then excluded because of this very narrow vision of what it means to be a woman in these particular small sects of feminist, goddess-centered witchcraft. Uh, And this has led to controversy around public rituals, Uh, Because when a a public ritual is held, I mean, the whole point is not to exclude anybody, right? And then right away, you're just by definition excluding a number of people who would like to participate. And this has has caused a great deal of hurt uh, among transgender women, non-binary women, um, or non-binary persons, rather, uh, and, and people who would like to participate, but who are by definition excluded from these rituals. So, what has happened as a result in the last, I would say, 10 or so years, 10, 12 years in modern paganism, is that uh, there has been a movement away from these very essentialist ideas of gender that has progressed as non-essential views of gender as constructed and performed have diffused more in popular culture. Uh, And those movements have led to changes in gendered language, in gendered concepts, in gendered ideas that have influenced uh, even mainstream Wicca. I'm not talking about feminist Dianic Wicca here. I'm talking about mainstream Wicca. Uh, One of the central ideas in mid-20th century Wicca was that uh, the polarity, the gender polarity, the tension between male and female was somehow at the root of all uh, magic, at the root of all transformative processes in nature. Well, there is always a tension that is the root of all transformative processes in nature. I mean, when you think about even at the atomic level, there are there are positive and negative charges, and this is really what leads to, you know, all of existence. But male and female, uh, are, are th- that's just one way of thinking of that polarity. There are many other things that we can talk about in terms of, you know, you can talk about positive charge and negative charge. You can talk about light and dark. You can talk about push and pull. You can talk about ebb and flow. You can, I mean, there's lots of ways of conceptualizing this that don't involve biological body parts, right? And that allow room for people all along the gender spectrum to understand that basic tension that is the center of all life, that is the creative force in the universe, as including everybody, because we're all part of this. It isn't about your plumbing. It isn't about your bits. Mm-hmm. How does this um, How does this apply to secular conversations about gender dynamics, gender roles, and gender equality. You mean outside of the pagan movement? 
Yeah. I think this reflects conversations that are taking place outside of the pagan movement, because the pagan movement isn't isolated from the rest of culture. It absorbs and reflects what's going on in popular culture. So, for example, a lot of the witches that I see now, like on TikTok or on social media, um, have very inclusive gender gendered views. Um Many covens that practice have changed gendered language around things like there's an old um, piece of language that goes with the union of the uh, athame and the cup uh, in in the climax of Wiccan ritual. The old language is as the athame is to the god, so the cup is to the goddess, and so conjoined, they bring blessedness. Well, you don't have to have gendered language around that. You can just talk about the athame and the cup joining and bringing blessedness, or you can say, as the athame is to the night, so the cup is to the day. You can say, as the athame is to the earth, so the cup is to the waters. You, you can use whatever metaphor you want right. to talk about that union, and it doesn't have to involve gender in the least. And I think that we want to go back to one of the very earliest esoteric teachings of um, the neo-pagan and the New Age movement that, as it emerged in the 19th century, in the 1800s. And that is the fundamental teaching that all human beings really contain both genders. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, we may present one or another way at birth. We may choose to present ourselves one or another way uh, through our dress, but that we contain both masculine and feminine and everything in between. So understanding the nature of human nature in this way, bringing back that understanding, I think, um, is helpful, as is the idea that the balanced human being, the, the ideal balanced human being, um, the the thing that we strive for, that people strive for when they practice something like modern witchcraft or one of the neo-pagan religions, the ideal is to have that balance of genders inside of us so that we are not all one thing or all another thing. We are not extremes. We are a blend. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good place to um, finish. And um, now can we move on to the quickfire questions or? Sure, if okay. you're ready for those. <laughs> okay, so the first one um, is, if you live to be 200, what's one thing you would do differently? Well, I found this question really challenging because I would want to know, okay, if I live to be 200, would I, would I have the health and energy most of that time that I had in my youth or middle age, or would I, you know, continue to age progressively and get weaker and weaker and weaker? Because, you know, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to live to be 200 and just be an incredibly frail uh, old lady for more than a hundred of those years. So I'm going to twist that question around and say, if I had 200 years to do anything that I wanted to do with, I might do things like, um, 
pursue other degrees. Uh, I might uh, pursue a degree in landscape architecture, which is always something that has fascinated me, or one in animal welfare, because in my volunteer activity for the last 40, more than 40 years, about 50 years, I've been a very strong advocate of animal welfare, particularly as, as it regards domestic animals and small uh, wildlife. Um, another thing that I would love to do in such an imaginary universe would be to project those years backwards, right? To be able to go backwards in time, to be able to time travel and to use those extra years to spend parts of a lifetime in a different time and place, perhaps getting to know the medieval magicians like uh, Pico della Mirandola and Marsilio Ficino, or perhaps going back to Elizabethan times and getting to know Mary Sidney, who was an early alchemist, and John Dee, who was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, or perhaps travel to the 19th century and get to know some of those poets and artists, uh, the Pre-Raphaelites. There's a wonderful Pre-Raphaelite exhibit right now, actually, in London. Um, get, get to know some of these people who were at the cusp of what we think of as the neo-pagan movement. So that's how I'm going to answer that question. That's a good answer. Um, what is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? I think the biggest misconception about folklore is that uh, folklorists and anthropology as well is that folklorists and anthropologists only study old fashioned cultures and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I hope that our conversation about memes and how memes are folklore has permanently disabused people of this mistaken idea. Mm -hmm. um, what's the worst advice you've been given? Probably something like, if you publish that, you'll kill your career. Um, About my neo-pagan work, of course. And actually, yeah, actually, as it turns out, it made my career. Hmm. So that, that was not good advice. Um, what is the most underrated spiritual teaching you've come across? I think chop wood, carry water, which comes from Zen Buddhism. So before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And what that means is that we have to do those everyday tasks. Being in touch with the numinous doesn't exempt us from doing those everyday tasks. And in fact, the numinous is often found in those ordinary everyday activities that we do. Chop wood, carry water. And the last one is Claire Booth Luce once told President Kennedy, a great man is one sentence. What's your sentence? So my sentence is, she planted the seeds of magic in tens of thousands of minds. That's really good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, before we finish, um, what are some places where people could find you or hear more about your work? If people are interested in my work, they can go to my website at the, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, they can also visit my academia.edu website where I post a lot of my uh, papers and uh, work. Um, go to a library, public library, look for my books. Um, yeah. Okay. Those are some of the yeah. places. I'll make sure to put some of that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. I hope you found it as interesting as I did and that you check out the show notes for 
a link to some of Dr. Malioko's work, as well as show notes for this episode. If you want to support Green Also Green or the Sustainable Spirit Podcast, a good way to do so is to follow us on Instagram, subscribe to the newsletter, and of course, leave a review of the podcast and share it. It's still a new podcast, so this really helps push it out to more audiences. Finally, I really hope to see you next episode, and until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart.